Welcome to the Sand Hills Media Ministry. We hope this production encourages and challenges you to live a more Christ-centered life. All right. Um, oh, somebody reminded me. Uh, we did this whole governing board election thing, and I never mentioned the results. Um, everybody's in. <laughs> they all made it. Uh, I did think it was funny, like, if somebody didn't make it, well, we put their screen up, uh, their picture on the screen, and just be like, that guy, you know. Uh, but no, everybody made it, so it's all, all good. Thank you for voting. Um, and then also, just a side thing, I went to the Greek festival yesterday. Have you guys been to the Greek festival? Do you go? I, I love the Greek festival. I like Greek food. So uh, it's just, it's, I'm a huge fan of baklava, anything with honey and nuts and all the pastry stuff, love that. Um, and then the, the, just the Greek food, like uh, we got the meatballs, the keftadas, they were just oh, fantastic. So uh, to get a chance to go. But one thing I do love is uh, we were there for some of the song and dance. And I have no rhythmic uh, dancing capacity. Like, if you saw me dance, you would ask me to stop. Um, it's just, it's a reality I live with. But when I watch the Greek dance, uh, I'm like, ooh, these are my people. Because uh, I, I think I could do that. Because first of all, you've got emotional support. You've got somebody on either side of you. And so you got the arm thing already working. And if you don't have a buddy who will stand on one side of you, they give you a hanky. And they're just like, twirl this as you do it. And so I think I could do that. Uh, and then if it's just the feet that we do, and I'm not real coordinated, but I think I could pull it off. And then when they finished, everybody clapped. And I was like, I could do that. I mean, I could. That's, and so at your next wedding, would you please do some Greek dancing? So for those of us who are uncoordinated, so we can get some celebratory moments with you. But thank you so much. All right. Uh, if you got your Bibles handy, uh, go ahead and pull them out. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 20 today. Totally been loving our journey through 1 Samuel chapter 20 uh, and 1 Samuel as a book. And now, as I've been studying this, um, one of the resources I use of the many is the uh, ESV study Bible. I hope you have a good study Bible. I have a study Bible I love. Uh, but my ESV study Bible, uh, which is the English standard version, uh, or as I like to think of it, the extra special version. Uh, but in the ESV study Bible, there's a comment made over this section. And this is what the comment says. Now that Saul has been completely disqualified as king, David is introduced as his successor and God trains David through suffering to lead his people. And it's the last part that gets me. God trains David through suffering to lead his people. Like I want, you know what I want? I would want it to be that when you put your faith in Christ, that life just gets easy. Like everything's smooth, relationships are great, your boss is great, money comes easy. Like, and it, it does. <laughs> I mean, you walk with the Lord and you still have a lot of stuff you go through. But I will say, walking with Jesus is the easiest way to do life. Anything else, you're fighting God as well as all the other stuff you're going through. But this here, God is training David through suffering. That's what we're going to see. So faithful, yet suffering, 1 Samuel chapter 20. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, what have I done and what is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. All right, so if you haven't been tracking with us, you don't even know where we are. <laughs> You're like, I don't know what's happening. So let me tell you what's happening. Um, King Saul has uh, already, uh, it's been communicated to him that God is taking the kingdom from him. He will no longer be king, but currently he's still in charge. God has told him he's going to replace him with somebody better than him, and he has now come to realize that person is David. Um, and David is now a member of his own home. David is married into the family. He's married to Saul's daughter, Michael, and so now he's actually the son-in-law to the king. Uh, and Saul has tried to kill him 
numerous times. And uh, so we already have a, a, a difficult relationship. Jonathan is Saul's firstborn son who should be heir to the kingdom. And he's also David's best friend. So we have a very complicated relationship uh, going on here. Now, Saul recently tried to find David and uh, attack and kill him. And so he had sent soldiers to go locate him. And uh, when the soldiers showed up, there was a bit of a church service going on. I'm calling it a church service. Technically, it wasn't quite that. But a bit of a church service going on. And every time soldiers showed up, they found themselves caught up in the church service and never went back and reported to Saul what was going on. So Saul decides after sending uh, several uh, groups of soldiers that he himself would go. So Saul shows up, and when he shows up, the Holy Spirit comes upon him. He too gets enraptured with uh, the worship of the Lord, the love of the Lord. But unlike the others, in his moment of exuberance, he strips off all of his clothes and is naked in front of everybody worshiping the Lord. It's really happened, by the way. Uh, and it was just this moment where God showed that he had the upper hand and he embarrassed the king in the midst of the, the journey. And so coming out of that now, David has fled that scene and now he and Jonathan are having this conversation. So he tells Jonathan, look, your dad's still trying to kill me. And Jonathan's, no, that's not so. Because if you've been with us in prior weeks, we talked about how uh, there was a conversation in this field, Jonathan and his dad, and dad vowed, no, I don't want to kill David. Although shortly after that, he threw a spear at him, but you know. So uh, here we are again. And so David's like, no, I'm telling your dad's still out for me. And Jonathan's like, no, my dad's not trying to kill you because if he was trying to kill you, he would tell me I'm his son. He loves me. And he's like, no, because we're best friends and he knows we're best friends. And so your dad isn't going to tell you anything. So this is setting the scene for us. Verse three. But David vowed again saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this lest he be grieved. But truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there's but a step between me and death. And then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. And if your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city. And there's a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. And if he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. So Jonathan and David, clearly they're best friends. They're committed to one another. Um, and I love this picture. Like one of the neat things about Samuel, for Samuel, is seeing the, the relationship of Jonathan and David as best friends really develop. And I think just for me, a, a bit inspirational. And one of the things I love in this is <clears throat> David says to Jonathan, your dad wants to kill me. And Jonathan's like, I, I really don't think that's the case, but you're my best friend. And you just need to tell me what you want me to do for you. And I love that picture of friendship. Like, I don't see what you see, but I'm totally committed to you. And if you say there's an issue or a need, I'm in, tell me what to do. Like, oh man, that's the kind of friends I want. Like, I, I don't know, I see it your way, but you tell me what you need from me and I'm there for you. And, and then there's this mention of this new, new moon festival. So let's talk about that in a second. So in Israel, they would have a festival at the new moon that is the first time the crescent moon would appear in the western sky. They would have a festival uh, because it was the beginning of their um, lunar month. And uh, I love the idea of festivals. I just told you I love the Greek festival. Uh, like we should do a festival one a month would be fantastic. And they do the whole thing. They do uh, worship, they do sacrifices. Uh, and in this case, um, the, the new moon festival would be presided over by the king. And as a member of the king's household, David is expected to be there. So that's kind of the context of what's going on. Verse eight. 
Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that I was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, well, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. So um, David's fortunate to have this friend in the midst of his suffering, that Jonathan's by his side. And they refer to this covenant they've made. Let's talk about covenant a little bit. So uh, I took some Old Testament classes years ago. Uh, not just Old Testament, I took Hebrew. I took uh, two semesters of Hebrew. And uh, the Hebrew professors aren't, in this service, they're in the other service, so I can talk about this. I have forgotten almost everything. I, so, Hebrew is such a hard language. Um, I do remember a couple things. I remember um, Satan's name literally means adversary. I got that out of Hebrew. Uh, and then I remember that they wouldn't make covenants, they would cut covenants. Uh, so in the Old Testament, when you see a reference to a covenant, it was almost always they would cut a covenant. And the reason they talk about cutting a covenant is, as I've mentioned here before, I think, they would kill an animal and uh, cut it in half. And then they would make their agreement between the animal. And the idea was to show the seriousness of the agreement they were making before God. And the idea was, may God do this to one of us if we violate the covenant. So it's a real thing. Uh, and this is why, again, marriage is a covenant. So whether people think it is or not, it still is in God's eyes, which is why when people divorce, you just see death everywhere. I mean, not necessarily physical death, but just destroyed relationships, destroyed hearts, destroyed emotions, uh, just all sorts of pain. And so that's the the outworkings of that. Uh, It's the violation of a covenant. And so... They've made a covenant of some sort. And we don't know what, because there's no details given. But it is some sort of thing like, I've got your back till the end of time, no matter what. I swear it before God, and if I ever violate that, may God judge me. That's the kind of vow they have with each other. Uh, And then it gets to the end of this, and it says here like, hey, I'll tell you what, let's go out into the field, let's continue this conversation. So it's not really a description given as to why they do that, but I'm pretty sure the reason is they want to have a private conversation about what's going on, and it's too easy for other people to overhear if they're in the royal household. And uh, and so uh, Jonathan and David are like, hey, let's get out of here, let's have this conversation in a different place. Uh, And so then it goes on, verse 12. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father." So this is, this is a neat picture between these two guys. Um, again, to continue to develop um, the relationship. And then there's this vow made, which is a really typical vow in this time period. May God do so to me and more. So that was the kind of thing when you wanted to swear to somebody you were telling the truth. You're like, hey, this thing's going on. And listen, if I'm lying to you, then may God do so, do so to me and more. Like I, I deserve punishment. I deserve to, be, uh, deserve to be punished over and above if I'm lying to you. So he makes this vow. But then this is where we're really starting to see Jonathan acknowledge he knows David's going to be king. There's like We've already seen it kind of implied. He's saying it now directly. And before we're done actually with, with this passage, he'll say it very directly. Uh, but this idea that like, I know you're going to be king. And when you are king, may it be that the Lord is upon you in the same way that he was upon my father. So now, now I want to pause here because there's There's a nuance between New Testament and Old Testament that we need to talk about that I don't want you to miss. 
So, uh, and that's how the Spirit of God used to work uh, and how the Spirit of God nowadays does work in believers' lives, and it is different. One of the things you'll see in the Old Testament is that the Holy Spirit of God would come upon people for a season, and then he would depart. Uh, and so, like, you would see this with the judges. Like, the Holy Spirit would come upon the judge, he would do this amazing deed, and then it looked like the Holy Spirit would take off. And then, like with King Saul, the Holy Spirit of God comes upon King Saul, he does these great things, then the Holy Spirit of God departs. And then with uh, David, uh, he's anointed by Samuel. The Holy Spirit of God comes upon David in a particular way. Uh, okay, so one of the things I would, I would not want you to be confused about is how the Spirit of God works in the New Testament believer's life today because it's different. Um, and so for us, this is what happens, and I'm just gonna bottom line it for you. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, the moment you realize he is the son of God who came to this earth to save you from your sin, he offered himself as a sacrifice, submitted himself to punishment, torture, execution. On the third day, he walked out of the tomb, proving that he had satisfied uh, your debt before God for all who put their faith in him, and he becomes your Lord and you become his servant. Like On that moment, that day, you receive the Holy Spirit. That's how that works. That at the moment of belief, you receive the Holy Spirit. It's not later. It's not sometime later. It's some other event. Uh, it comes at that moment. Uh, now, it's not just me saying that. Scripture says that. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says, In him, that is in Jesus, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And then the Holy Spirit who comes into your life at the moment of salvation stays with you until you die. <laughs> so, I mean, if you think about it, it's amazing. Like the person of God and the, and the person of the Holy Spirit indwells me, meaning that the full power of God lives within me. Uh, I mean, that's just an amazing concept anyway. Now, it doesn't make me God, uh, and I don't get access to lightning, which I want. But other than that, like, I get cool stuff. Like, and the Holy Spirit will do in and through you things that you did not anticipate. So there are some things we can do, because you'll wrestle with, like, well, I don't know, how's this? Okay, let's do it biblically. If we're going to do it, like, what does the Bible say uh, about the Holy Spirit? So just a few things. So one is you can quench the Spirit. If you take notes, that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19. You can quench the Spirit. Meaning then, when the Holy Spirit is kind of beginning to work in and through you, uh, and you're feeling like, hey, I should say something, do something, or resist this temptation, or whatever it would be, and you fight that, you're quenching the Spirit. Uh, it's like the Spirit's starting to burn inside you, starting to develop this little fire inside you, and you just pour water on it. So Scripture tells us we can quench the Spirit. But by contrast, you can also be filled with the Spirit, which we see in Ephesians 5.18. This idea that the Holy Spirit, and the equivalent is given to alcohol, which I think is really interesting, where uh, alcohol is this depressant that inhibits uh, you know, the uh, restraints that you would normally have, but the Holy Spirit's a stimulant. And what he does is without you losing your, your capacity, you become exactly who God wants you to be, where you're able to do things you wouldn't have been able to do beforehand, or say things that you would not have said beforehand, and there's a supernatural result. And if you just want proof of that, talk to an old, te uh, old testament, talk to a mature saint, and talk to somebody who's been walking with Jesus for decades, and then just ask them, what are things the Holy Spirit has done in and through that you, that you never would have expected? And they will tell you stories of what the Holy Spirit has done. Like, just God does amazing things. All right, so those are some differences between Old Testament and New Testament. We get the Spirit, we keep the Spirit. Old Testament, he came and he left. <laughs> he visited. Um, after the first service, a woman came up to me and she said, hey, pastor, can we not also grieve the Spirit? And I was like, okay, yeah, 100%, we can grieve the Spirit. That's also in Scripture. That's Ephesians chapter four. And there are other things of the Spirit. I'm just, you know, I'm not doing a whole discourse. I'm just talking a little bit. So uh, a little Spirit stuff right there. All right, let's go back to our passage. Verse 14. 
Jonathan is speaking. He says, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. All right, so it starts off with Jonathan sounding like he's fearing for his life. Like, hey, if I'm still alive, I need you to watch over me, make sure I don't die. So why would he say that? What's going on with that? So um, the way political regimes change in our country are very different than the way they change in other parts of the world even today and the way they did historically. So like in our country, uh, let's say uh, if the Democrats get voted out of office and Republicans get voted in, then they just trade offices. And then if the Republicans get voted out and Democrats get voted in again, they trade offices. That's what they, they do. In other countries, and historically what they would do, is if another party came in, they would just kill the preceding party that was there. And that's how it used to work. Uh, and so Jonathan's like, listen, I already realize I'm not going to be king. You are. So when you are king, can you make sure your people don't wipe me out? That's a part of it. Uh, now, it's probably also a reference to, you know, if I come into a battle or a war, uh, please honor me. And he even says this about take care of my house. You know, will you please watch over my house? Uh, meaning, like, if I die, would you take care of my wife? Uh, would you watch over my kids? Would you take care of my plants? Watch my animals? You know, like, whatever. Like, if I die, would you take care of my lineage? And, uh, and so there's this commitment, like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that for you. And it, they swear again by their love for one another. Now, I love this comment about their love because I think the love of best friends is powerful. Um, and again, our current culture has corrupted healthy love that men would show to one another. I mean, women too, but I'll be honest, you women, you, like, you don't wrestle with this. You tell each other you love each other all the time, you hug each other, you kiss each other, it's weird, but you love each other. Uh, but, but guys don't normally do that. With guys, it's harder, uh, even harder to say we love each other. Now, again, too, as our Old Testament professor reminds me, uh, love isn't just an emotion, it's a choice, meaning these guys are committed to one another, they're watching out for each other, they have this covenant. Uh, but they do swear because they do love each other. And, um, and I just want to affirm my guys out there that it is okay to tell your friends that you love them. In fact, it's so funny, even coming up to this week, I have a friend of mine who's a professor at a university in Nashville. And uh, he called me, we're talking on the phone. As we're getting off the phone, he says, hey, I love you, brother. I was like, man, I love you too. And we hung up and I was like, oh, this is like ties into everything we're talking about. And then I was thinking about it, I was like, I think literally I have told all my guy friends that are closest to me that I love them. So let me affirm you dudes out there who are like, ah, I don't know, that sounds weird. Like, please do it. Tell your best friends you love them. Uh, but don't make it weird. But you know, anyway. Uh, so there you go. All right, that's the whole love thing. Then we're going into verse 18. <laughs> verse 18. Uh, then Jonathan said to him, tomorrow's the new moon and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. So on the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy saying, go find the arrows. And if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them, then you're to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. And so all they're doing now is they're working out some code. And so the code is this. Like if I talk to my dad and he wants to kill you, uh, I'll indicate one thing. If you're going to be safe, I'll indicate another. There's a heap of stones that we've piled up out there. I'll shoot some arrows. If I tell the boy, hey, come to this side, come on back, David, you're good. If I say, no, 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 they're beyond you, then you better run for your life because my dad's out to kill you. So this is the, the code they've worked out. Uh, so now let's go forward and find uh, David's enemy in the midst of his suffering, uh, King Saul. 
All right, verse 24. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times on the seat of the wall, uh, by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. Now, before I go further, the idea that Saul expects that David would come and sit across from him at dinner at all, I find amusing. He has tried to kill him numerous times. Like, in what universe do you expect him to show up for dinner? Uh, like, that's just a crazy thing. And, like, this is his thinking. All right, so this is the festival of the new moon. That's a religious thing. We're going to be worshiping the Lord. As Jews, you can't worship unclean, and you can't be around others if you're unclean, because then you'll make us unclean. And so probably David has accidentally become unclean. He's going to take 24 hours, go through a purification ritual, and he should be here tomorrow. That's kind of Saul's thought in this whole thing. So... Let's keep going, verse 27. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty, and Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. So here, this is interesting the way Saul says this. Saul says, hey, where's the son of Jesse? Now, very openly, he is distancing himself from David. He doesn't even want to say his name. It would be similar to if you had um, kids who are married, um, and you're referring to your son-in-law or daughter-in-law, or you're referring to the boyfriend or girlfriend of the, the kid your um, son or daughter is dating, uh, and you were to say, uh, what's going on with that husband of yours? Where's that boyfriend of yours? You know, it's like this idea that, like, I'm not even going to honor them by using their name. You're kind of distancing yourself. So that's kind of the idea. Where's the son of Jesse? And I love uh, Jonathan's response because uh, he says, uh, David earnestly asked leave. And so what he's saying is like, hey, dad, his name is David. And David asked leave because his family gets together once a year. They've already printed T-shirts. They got the pavilion rented at the park. Um, they're going to be doing barbecue. You know, it's going to be good. He can't, he had to go with them. And his older brother's kind of in charge of things and he made him go. You know, like he's, he's doing this dismissive thing. But what's interesting in the middle of all this, which you've already noticed, is uh, they're lying. John, Jonathan's lying. David's lying. This is one big ruse. This is all fake. And there's a, I don't know if you wrestle with that at all, um, but let me, let me encourage you with a phrase that I use often and I, I think it's important. Okay. We, that is we who are believers in Christ, we owe evil nothing. We owe evil nothing. And so if somebody intends to harm someone or uh, injure another person or whatever, and they're coming to me for truthful information so they can do that to somebody, I can, I can deceive openly and God will not be dis disappointed. We see this in scripture uh, regularly. Uh, and let me give an example that would make sense to you. So let's say I have uh, some friends who are going through a horrible situation and the husband has begun to physically abuse his wife or children. And they come to our house to seek shelter. And so I have the, the wife and the kids are at my house. And then my friend calls me and he says, hey, is my wife and kids there? And then I would say to him, no, I haven't seen them. So you're like, well, you're a Christian. Yeah, that's why I'm standing in the gap to protect people. That's what I do. So like, I, had, I don't have any shame about that at all. And neither does Jonathan or David. They're like, hey, we got to save your life, brother. If my dad is trying to kill you, that is unrighteous, that's wrong, that's murder. I'm going to stand in the gap for you. And so uh, they go through this ruse to, to figure this out because, you know, we don't owe evil anything. Uh, verse 30. This is Saul's response. Um, 
Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. I mean, I mean, Saul, he doesn't get better, does he? It just, it just keeps getting worse. Um, and now I will point out as well, he's referring to his wife, um, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? I mean, these are weird put downs. I'm going to be honest with you. This is odd. Verse 31. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger, ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. I mean, what a crazy dinner conversation. <laughs> I mean, this whole thing just explodes. Uh, I feel bad for Abner and the other people that were there. But he, Jonathan and his dad get into it. And then his dad gets so angry after condemning his own wife that he reaches back, grabs his spear, and tries to impale his own son. I mean, this is insane. Now, we get, listen, I know he's fighting an evil spirit, and this evil spirit's taking control of him, uh, but this is inexcusable. This is crazy. And now I want to remind you of this, too. This isn't like some teenager that just storms out of the room because he's angry. Jonathan is a fierce warrior. Like, if he wanted to, after his dad had chucked that spear at him, he could have he beat his dad down, and he doesn't. He leaves, and he leaves in anger, but he realizes, he's like, my dad is exactly who I think he is and who David thinks he is. It's just a nightmare. And so uh, he does leave, and uh, now he's got to go talk to his brother, literally his brother, but the one he loves the best, his best friend, Um, and then he shares in his suffering, verse 35. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David, and with him, a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. So as the boy ran, he shot an arrow behind him. Let's go pause for a second. Has anybody seen any maybe safety issues going on? (laughs) You start running, I'll start shooting. Like, there's a part of me that's like, I don't know, maybe the guy didn't write this quite well, or maybe that's exactly what happened. I don't, I don't know. I just want to point out, you may not pass your um, archer safety class. Um, so, verse 37. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called out after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. Which is all code for David to like, dude, run for your life. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master, but the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and they wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. So just a beautiful moment here. First, let me address the, the big thing. It says they, they kissed each other. Like, I, I want you to understand, it's a Middle Eastern kiss greeting kind of thing. It's like, it's totally, totally manly. Uh, it's just not they're smooching each other. Um, so here's how this works. In the Middle East today, to this day, uh, they will greet one another. Men, even, will put their cheek by each other's cheek, and they'll kiss on each side of the cheek. 
depending on which country you're in. Uh, and I've seen it before. I have a friend who's from Congo, uh, and so he and his Congolese friends, uh, when I visited their church, uh, the men would come up to me and greeted me the same way. They would put their cheek beside my cheek, and they'd just make a kissing noise. They didn't actually kiss my cheek. Well, there was one dude who kissed me on both cheeks, which I just thought was weird, but I get, it's a culture thing, so it's cool. Uh, but like, it's not, it's not romantic in any way. It's just the way they would do it. Like in our culture, of course, guys will greet each other with a handshake or a hand clap type shake, and then they'll embrace each other. Uh, and we're looking at that, and we go, well, that's totally how guys do it. So that's their thought in the Middle Eastern culture. They're like, oh, that's just how we do it. So anyway, uh, they do this, but, but David shows him great honor by bowing down to him. He doesn't ask Jonathan to bow to him or expect that. He bows down to show honor to Jonathan, remind him that, hey, man, I'm still submissive to you. I still value you and your household. And then I'm re- reminded of uh, Proverbs 17, 17. Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. And just a great reminder that when you have a legitimate friend in your life, when you're going through it, they're there for you, uh, just as Jonathan is there for him. So as we've been studying uh, Old Testament, as we've been studying this um, journey through 1 Samuel, I've been reminded of the fact that we learn lessons. We don't always hear exact teachings, thus, therefore, you go and do. But we are learning lessons as we study this, at least by example. And so one lesson I think we learned from Jonathan is God uses his people to protect others. God uses his people to protect others. That's a very Jesus-like thing. When we will use our power and our means to intervene on behalf of those who are suffering or uh, in danger. Uh, I think that's something that, that we would do. And then as I was preparing this, I thought, wow, how interesting it is that we have Passion Sunday coming up next week when that's the very thing that we're doing, uh, where we will stand in the gap for people who don't have opportunities that we have, that won't get the education, uh, that will suffer in life much more significantly had we not intervened. And so this is one of those where we use our power and our resources uh, to change the destiny of another person. So that's one thing I think we learned from this. Uh, A second, I think, would be um, maybe this, a lesson learned from David, is that suffering can be beneficial. Suffering could be beneficial. I'm not saying you'd sign up for it, but I'm just saying it is. Uh, And we need to develop a paradigm that will acknowledge that God can be absolutely good even when we suffer. And that we understand that his will is still being done even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of chaos, even in the midst of life-threatening situations. And so I I want you to think about this. So many of you right now are actually, maybe have been going through something or you've been going through something recently. So if you're going through something and it's very difficult and I come to you and I say to you, listen, I want you to know something. God has spoken to me and God wants me to tell you everything's gonna work out okay. In fact, when you get to the other side of this difficulty you're in, you will feel so blessed. Like you'd be like, oh man, I'm so glad I know that. I was so worried. All right, like if I do that for you, I have done a disservice to your faith. So faith... Faith is something that is forged through trial. It's not something just handed out to you. And so you have to go through the journey trusting in God the whole time so that when you get to the other side, you realize that your, your trust was not in vain and it makes your faith more fully developed as opposed to me circumventing that uh, and leaving you with an underdeveloped faith. Uh, so for instance, if I say to you, uh, do you think the suffering of David was beneficial in his life? You would probably say, oh, yeah, it it was. And I say, okay, talk to me about the fruit that all the suffering he went through bore in his life. What are all the great things that came out of David's suffering? You would develop a list. So if we're doing this like in little conversation groups. Then if I were to say, okay, stop. I want you to take, scratch through David's name, and I want you to write your name in there. And then I want you to be reminded of all the great and wonderful things that come through the suffering in your own life. 
And then you'd say, oh, dang, I didn't want to be reminded of that. <laughs> I, I want the e- there's easy path. I want the easy path. Um, but there is not an easy path. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so we rejoice. I'm not telling you to rejoice in the sufferings. That's not the point. You rejoice in what the suffering will produce, and that is steadfastness, perseverance. You're going to come out on the other side of this thing. And the image for me is this. So it's funny because I was talking about this before. So imagine a big storm uh, or like even a hurricane. And uh, picture the rocks on the side of a seashore. And so the hurricane is just, it is wailing. The waves are crashing on the shore. Uh, Rain is coming down just in buckets. There's thunder, there's lightning, there's intense wind. But eventually when all that dissipates, you're going to look on the shore and there's going to be the rocks. And so it, it makes me think of this, that we know Jesus is our rock. And when we stand on that rock of Christ, that the waves of life and even the, the torrent of, of Satan himself can come against us. But when they're finally worn out with trying to assail us, the, the, the pain will subside, the sun will come out, and we'll be re- reminded that we're just as solid as we have ever been because we've trusted in Christ. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much. Thank you for this reminder. Uh, first of all, a beautiful picture of friendship, but then also a reminder too that even when we are in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of pain, in the midst of uh, even life-threatening situations, you don't abandon us, and it doesn't mean you're not good, that you bring your goodness in surprising ways. And in the end, literally, we do benefit, and that you shape our character, you shape our faith through the difficulties, not by bringing us out of them. So Lord, we trust you, and we pray that whatever we have going on in our lives right now, that you would produce your fruit to the glory of your name and the celebration of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.